good to see you all, familiar faces, unfamiliar faces, and uh, particularly welcome to Susan. Uh, I'm very excited about this book because uh, uh, Susan has been one of my favorite sparring partners on this subject for a long time. <laughs> so I don't know quite how I feel, but thank you. <laughs> uh, no, it's going to be fun. Uh, so let's start with I, w- I want to start with a with with a question that that puzzled me as I was reading the book, which is whether this is fundamentally a book about the role of encryption in investigations, or whether it's fundamentally a book about cybersecurity more generally, or whether those questions are even distinct, or w- whether those subjects are even distinct. Right. So the answer is I don't think the subjects are distinct. When I started out. I thought I was writing a book about the role of encryption. And as I began writing, and especially as I watched the Russia investigation unfold in real time, um, and I stopped writing in March, so my writing is from where it stopped in March. So no George Papadopoulos, no Paul Manafort. Although I do thank a Greg Papadopoulos at the beginning (laughs) of the book. Uh, As far as I know, no relation. Um, uh, As I began to write, I realized how inextricably tied they were because they're real, really we are so dependent on cyber in so many different ways that we really need to secure society. And that's really where I came down. So they ended up being tied together. All right. So let's, let's start with that tie. Because it's not entirely intuitive to me. Sure. So I look at it and I say, yes, we are all deeply interlinked. Yes, encryption is essential to basic cybersecurity. But it is conceivable to have a more secure environment in the absence of pervasive wall-to-wall, end-to-end encryption and at-rest encryption with no whatever you want to call it, backdoors or exceptional access. Uh, It is conceivable for that environment to be insecure. And it is conceivable for an environment in which uh, you carefully build such exceptional access systems to be quite secure. There is not a an inherent insecurity of the one and definitional security about the other. And you both, uh, it is sort of the assumption, but it's also argued in the book, that that's quite wrong. That's right. And so, like, walk us through why... why Despite the fact that you know John, the DNC hack was not an encryption thing; it was a it was a spear phishing operation in which you know password insecurity was was the result. Despite all that, the the synchronon for you of security is end to end encryption, and I just want to start just justify sure. that. Sure. So there are actually two pieces of synchronon. The first one is end-to-end encryption, in which the two ends of the communication are the only ones who can understand the communication. And the other is secured devices. And I'll start with secured devices, because that actually applies to the Podesta case. And what you had in the Podesta case is you had um, Podesta had single-factor authentication, his password, to his account. There was no second factor. He didn't use his phone to authorize getting into his account. He didn't use a little Yubi key. I should have brought a Yubi key, but he didn't. I got use... one. Okay. Uh, not actually. I don't have one on me. Uh, in, in there. Um, he didn't use a second factor, and had he been doing so, it wouldn't have been possible for them to get in. That's the first issue. 
The second issue is, if you're going to make phones easy to hack, that is, easy to break into, then you can't protect the, the software on the phones. Now, that may not be obvious to you, but in fact, software and data are the same thing to computer scientists, to engineers. They are actually the same thing. It doesn't look that way to the rest of people, but it, but it really is the same thing. When you make a phone less secure, and what Apple has been doing over a period of a half dozen years by now, maybe even longer, maybe 10 years by now, eight years by now, is making the, the phone itself more secure. When you do that, you make it harder for people to get data off the phone. You make it harder for them to, to muck with the software on the phone. So the answer to Podesta is second factor authentication, and you want the phone to be secure. The other answer to Podesta is you also want communications to be secure. If you go back 30 years, which I know is hard for some of you in the audience, <laughs> but if you go back 30 years, People talked ephemerally. You talked on the phone, you hung up the phone, the conversation was gone. The other person thought they knew what you said, but it was their word against your word. It was gone. Um, you could write a letter. People did write letters. They really did write letters. Um, you could write a letter, but co communications, whether they were in person or on the phone, were ephemeral. As we moved to email, communications stopped being ephemeral. Now, one of the things about end-to-end -end encryption, at least the way we engineers, we security engineers like to see it, is we have something called forward secrecy, which says that each message should have its own key. This makes it very hard to use the communication afterwards, because each message has its own key. If you're trying to store all the mail, then you're not going to have each message with its own key because it's unusable. But if you're not trying to store the mail, then each message with its own key means if somebody goes and grabs it, they have to break each individual message separately. So there are two different things. We've had a societal move to, to storing information, including communications, and end-to-end -end encryption protects the ephemerality of communications. Now, if you're somewhere like Google, you'll say, well, ephemerality is all, that, all good, but you know, we want to be able to serve you, give you services, and for that we need to know your communications. So you do have actually end-to-end, -end, uh, you do have this, this trait that, this, uh, this trait that I just described is called forward secrecy. Anytime you communicate with Google, you have forward secrecy on the communication, but then Google stores them, the communication. Um, the other piece is the, the securing of the phone. Okay, so walk us through... Uh, well, let, tell me if you think this is a reasonable summary of where you come down. That, number one, the FBI and uh, advocates of... So, exceptional access regime. Irresponsible. Are, responsible encryption. Are, 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 are kidding themselves. Um, and number two, that there's no entirely good solution to the problem that they pose, or maybe I should say that we pose, but that the pieces of the answer are a combination of reliance on metadata, uh, which is increasing, and on uh, a sort of lawful hacking uh, regime on which you posit that the Bureau has been insufficiently ambitious. Is that, is that fair? So it's absolutely fair that there's no good solution. Um, there is no solution that gives the FBI access to any communication for which they have legal access and also protects um, communications and stored data. And the reason for that is the argument I went through a couple of minutes ago. Um, I don't think metadata and lawful hacking. So lawful hacking is the idea that the FBI 
with a warrant, in fact, with two warrants, because they have to actually look at the device, and then they have to put some vulnerability on that gets data off the device. But, um, but lawful hacking is not an easy solution. It's, it's uh, expensive in terms of research, and it's expensive because you use it up. It's a solution that you go to essentially as last resort, the same way wiretapping is. The, all, the other fact is we're drowning in a sea of data. As, as the NSA said a few years ago, um, and as we have now seen with law enforcement quite recently, Internet of Things, Alexa, Fitbits, are providing information about what suspects are doing and people are being arrested on the, on the basis of those. Essentially what I'm saying here is that we have really shifted the way the world looks, and there's a mass of data in many ways, but the Bureau, has, the Bureau and law enforcement generally, and when I say law enforcement generally, State and local police do over half the wiretaps in this country. And while the FBI is having trouble, they're having a great deal more trouble. New York and LA may be technically capable of doing certain things, but, but lots of state and local are just too small, and they don't have that technical capability. So they are having trouble. <laughs> okay, so I, I, I want to figure out what, from your point of view, is the cost-benefit here before we get to the question of whether you know, people like me are engaged in folly. So let's say we go to a world in which the Bureau and the state and local law enforcement rely on the explosion of IoT metadata and communications metadata. And data, not just metadata. Not just, and data, but just stuff that is, is obtainable with process uh, and that the ones who were capable i.e. the Bureau in the cases that it's going to spend a lot of money and energy uh, can break a phone um, or hire an Israeli company to break a phone. Is that a world that is net positive for law enforcement versus the world 10 years ago when they had communications content but less of that sort of data? Or is it a world that's net negative in terms of capability? Or do we just not know? So um, I, I was originally trained as a mathematician. I'm going to do something really terrible to you now. <laughs> um, and in mathematics, we say if you start with a false hypothesis, you can prove anything. Um, so you're starting with a false hypothesis. And the false hypothesis is 10 years ago. Because if you roll back 20 years, there wasn't this wealth of data. And we were really living for the last 15 to 20 years with a real wealth of data. Phones were easy to get to. Communications weren't encrypted. And for a large piece of law enforcement, that's what they've been looking at. If you roll back to 25 years ago, that data wasn't there. In oh, okay, so actually, so let's say back, uh, what, what's, what's the year, the last year that you can identify when it's before the digital revolution, right? So there's not a whole lot of of data you can get by process just by asking for it, but you can attach alligator clips and, right. and with a warrant you can wiretap anybody you want. What year are we talking We're about? We're probably talking 1998, but there was another problem with your hypothesis, so let me finish okay. that one and then, then we can go to where you want to go. Good. And the other problem with your hypothesis is if we look, and, and Ben had started the questions by saying, is this about encryption or is it about cybersecurity? And I ended up realizing, as I wrote, that it was inextricably, the two are inextricably linked. Um, back in the 1980s, the threats were against military. 
the Russians were, were attempting to hack into U.S. military. In the 1990s, we saw threats against governments. In the 2000s, it was threats against industry. But what we discovered in the last election, in, in, in the Office of Director of National Intelligence report in January, one of the little-known phrases in there is that there were also Russian attacks against uh, civil society, uh, I'm not quoting exactly, civil society groups likely to, to influence U.S. public policy. And all of a sudden, we're talking about a much wider swath of society. A corporation can say, you want to connect to our system, two-factor authentication, you can only get these services when you're outside, when you're traveling. Government can say that. Military can say that. But if you're talking about civil society, and I mean civil society writ large, right? you know, every day is unfolding more Russian hacking and more attempts to create divisiveness within society. So at the time that the ODNI report came out, I talked to several civil society organizations in Washington, and I can't tell you who they are. Uh, one of them said, yes, they had been informed by the FBI that the FBI, that the Russians had gone after them. Um, another one said, no, we haven't been informed by the FBI, but we're very worried. A third one um, gave me a sort of nondescript, not very interesting answer of saying, well, we've outsourced it, so now our security is fine. Um, but if you think about these different organizations, they have different threats. One organization, the membership of the organization, you know, let's, let's posit an LGBT military group. Their membership might be the issue. Um, if you think about um, another organization uh, that produces reports, whether it's the American Cancer Society or the Union of Concerned Scientists, they would care about if the reports are, are messed with just prior to publication and the statistics in there are slightly different. A loss of reputation is very hard to recover. And if, if you don't believe me, think back to ClimateGate. Um, and that's what happened there when the emails were were taken from uh, uh, the University of East Anglia's climate study group. When you look at those kinds of issues, you suddenly understand it's a much bigger swath of society we have to protect. And that's the other piece of, of the issue. Yeah, so just to make that point really real, right around the time that Susan had these conversations with civil society groups, I was notified by the FBI that I had a cybersecurity problem. Uh, which was presumably about a foreign actor. Well, at least they didn't say that, but I, that was my assumption. Uh, and so the point that you're making here rings quite true. Um, that said, though my premises may be wrong, I still want an answer <laughs> to my question, <laughs> um, which is, you know, so 1989 versus... 1999. 1998, 1999, uh, last year that we are in a, a, a sort of an analog situation where there's not a wealth of data, um, but you can wiretap anyone you want versus now... With a, law, with a with, warrant. With, with a warrant. Yeah. We're assuming yeah. lawful, appropriate conduct okay. here on the part of law enforcement. Is... is law enforcement's position today versus then and 10 years into the future in your, in your prognostication a net gain or a net loss? So here's what I can tell you because I don't do law enforcement investigations and if I did I couldn't say. Um, with, that is I couldn't give the details of it. But we know that back in the late 1990s NSA was having trouble. It was going deaf. 
it was going deaf partially because various nations that hadn't been using encryption before were now using it. There was a great increase in the, vol in the amount of communications um, due to the internet and various types of electronic communications, and there was a great variety. It was called volume, variety, and velocity, uh, the 3V problem. And uh, Seymour Hirsch published an article in The New Yorker that talked about NSA problems. Then you have uh, Hayden, the, uh, not Hayden, McConnell, Mike McConnell, uh, who was the director of NSA in the 1990s when, when the NSA was participating in a battle to keep control on encryption uh, abroad, but it also had impact on, on domestically. Hayden, uh, Mike McConnell said, you know, we lost that battle, and the product, the SIGINT product, the signals intelligent product, was better, has been, is better than ever now because of what, of what they're able to collect. Law enforcement's job is different. Law enforcement has to go for a conviction. NSA is, is, fine, is doing intelligence. So I warrant that they're, I agree that they're different. But I also note that the NSA really moved forward in technology, whereas the FBI has not been doing that. And that's part of the problem here. Okay, so walk us through that. What did NSA do that, N that FBI has not done, and, and why is it significant? Um, okay, this will take a very long time. Okay, give, give us the <laughs> overview. Um, so NSA really went into heavy collection of metadata. Metadata is the who was talking to whom, when, for how long, where. Now, um, in many cases, you don't actually know who was who talking to whom, you only know the numbers of where they're communicating. There's a beautiful example in a New York Times Magazine article called the Hezbollah Collection, Connection, uh, which is not an NSA investigation, but it's public, so you can, can read about it, where they talk about the assassination of Harari, the former prime minister who was likely to become the prime minister. He was killed by a truck bomb. One of the investigators tracked groups of telephones, anonymous groups of telephones around uh, 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 Beirut that morning and observed very interesting connections over these five different, four different groups, red, green, blue, maybe purple, I don't remember what the fourth color was. And they all communicated in, within their group and there was one person from each group who communicated across. He was able to discover what happened, who had been doing it, simply based on the communications metadata. It's a very powerful story. The NSA does things like it looks at pairs of phones where one is active only when the other one is not. So somebody is using a phone in a village, and then he goes to the city to do something perhaps nefarious, and, and he's using a different phone. And it, it does all kinds of sophisticated things like that. FBI hasn't been doing that. In fact, in 2011, I testified in Congress, and uh, on one, uh, two seats down was the general counsel of the FBI, Val Caproni, in the middle was the, the president of the International Chiefs of Police. And this is 2011. Encryption wasn't on the scene. And he said, there's so many different kinds of telephones. He was from a small city in Virginia. There's so many different kinds of telephones. We can't even figure out how to deal with the telephones. The phones weren't locked. He couldn't deal with the telephones because each one was different. So at that point, there were requests from me, but from many other people too, that the FBI set up an organization that help inform state and local just how to do simple things. We're not talking about using a fancy hack into a phone. We're talking about a simple thing of how do you open this phone? What are the steps you take? It took four years for the FBI to do it, um, and it's still 
not working at the level that I think it should be working at. Okay, so let's talk about what you think, like if, if you ran the next 10 years of technology vision for the Bureau. Day one, you say, all right, we're giving up on this whole going dark thing because, you know, the witnesses of the world, they're just full of crap. Um, but here's what... <laughs> Although they do invite me to book talk. Here's what we're going to do instead. Um, we're going to... Uh, and, and what does that vision look like? And what could you promise confidently about it? That if it were implemented, here's what we get. So... You're asking somebody who's never done law enforcement, but I'll try. So the first thing is the budget... I've never done law enforcement either. So yes, it doesn't bother you. Um, so the first part is their group for going dark, the group that deals with encrypted communications. That group is about 10 to 20 times too small. I'd vastly increase the budget. Second thing is um, it's hard to be a nerd at the FBI. They're making efforts... To, to increase the number of nerds there. But if you look at the career path um, at the FBI for somebody who is a technical person, it doesn't go very high. You look at the career path at NSA for a technical person, and you can go all the way up. So work to encourage the best and the brightest to go into the FBI. But when you, say, when you say going, I just want to flesh out what that yeah. means. Do you mean... Because do you mean that the nerds are special agents? Or yeah. do you mean, so, so you mean like agent tracks for tech people? That's right. Okay. That's right. Um, the next thing, and I know that they've made some steps under Director Comey in that direction, but they need to do much more. The next thing is the center that they set up that does information sharing between state and local, between the feds and state and local, probably needs to improve quite a bit. Um, that is, it isn't doing things effectively enough for the state and local. Um, so state and local will say, which column do I look at in the metadata to do this? This should, it, you want a Google customer service type thing. You want things that are transparent and easy to use. Um, you probably have to think about how to do investigations differently. And here's where I'm skating on ice that's very thin because I don't do investigations. But how do you do investigations in the digital age? That's part of the, the rethinking that the NSA did back in the, in the early 2000s. And that's the, the piece that I can't really answer. Mm -hmm. All right. So now let's take it down a level. Uh, let's skip over the big city police departments because they can actually invest the kind of resource, not the kind of resources that the Bureau can put into something, but they can, if, if the LAPD or the NYPD wants to do And the that, NYPD has actually set up a group. Uh, yeah, no, they've got a, you know, th th they can pour resources into a problem in the way that very few law enforcement agencies can. But let's talk about the Charlottesville Police Department, which, you know, has had some issues recently. And I've been thinking about those issues because they're issues related to uh, large numbers of people coming into the town right? who are not from there. And so they don't have a kind of like, well, we know this kid kind of relationship with, right? They're kind of out of nowhere. And they're organizing bad acts presumably using their smartphones, because that's the way everybody that age organizes everything they right. do. Right. And so there, you have a large number of people sweeping into town and organizing terroristic violence of some sort 
uh, using electronic means, and you don't really have an obvious window into that. And so now you're, you're the chief technology officer of the Charlottesville Police Department. I want to say this is like a really hard problem. What do you advise the police chief right. of Charlottesville so, to so do? So that's where I think it's not actually a CTO problem. I think it actually is how do you manage when you have two violent groups coming together. And we had this back in the 60s. We had it at the uh, Chicago Democratic Party Convention. We had it at various anti-war marches. We have expertise in keeping apart groups. That was not done as well as it should have been at Charlottesville. Do you do a certain amount of infiltration? Of course you do a certain amount of infiltration. I think that this is one of those that it's probably not. The, Sh the Charlottesville police has to work with national uh, groups like the, NS the FBI in this case uh, because you're dealing with a national organization that's coming into or na I, 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 an organization that's spread across the nation that's coming into Charlottesville. So there has to be a lot of good information sharing. Part of it is knowing your terrain and figuring that out. But I think on the, the chief technology officer side, that's a, an FBI job largely because you know this week Charlottesville, next week uh, Birmingham. Right. One of the challenges that I had in reading this book is I looked at a lot of the examples that you gave, and I said, you can have two-step authentication without end-to-end -end encryption. You can have a lot of the examples that you identified are actually problems of phishing, spear phishing. That's right. And you can address that problem without encryption. And actually, if you don't address that problem, having a lot of encryption won't well, save you right. because people will get your passwords and they'll get your decryption keys. But if you have two-factor authentication, that does help. With right, right, right. So my question is, if you, if you have a systematic implementation of, of two-factor authentication, and you have uh, a whole lot more sophistication about spear phishing and phishing attacks. Um, how much of the security problem that you're identifying remains if you don't have end-to-end -end encryption as well? You know, well? it's funny that you ask that because, in fact, I think law enforcement is more concerned about secured devices than it is about end-to-end -end encryption. I think they've largely backed off of end-to-end -end encryption. Um, I think the end-to-end -end encryption is important. Think, <coughs> think about the disruption that happened to Sony with the publication of all the emails. Um, we've gotten really sloppy about what we say in email. Um, I know that the other day a colleague asked me something about a third person, and I thought, I don't have time. She doesn't have time. I can't reach her by phone. But I really need to say something that I'm not really comfortable saying in email. I thought about taking it out of the work environment and sending it on our two personal emails. Um, her personal email is Gmail, so I would then have to tell her to do delete forever. Uh, I thought, is she going to think I'm really weird as I go through all of this? So I finally just sent it on the work email, and I said, P.S., this is one of these pieces of email that should probably not stay around because it was an embarrassment factor. I was saying about a particular person that I didn't feel that necessarily they were a good fit um, we do a lot of that without thinking about it. We treat email as if it's ephemeral conversation. It's not. 
there's a lot we shouldn't be saving. And I think of end-to-end encryption as that's a way of going back to the world we once had. Well, what about secure devices? If you, if you uh, deal with the phishing problem, and granted, that's a big if, given human nature, and if you deal with the two-factor authentication problem, my phone, if I get hit by a bus on the way home, uh, because my phone does uh, back up certain stuff to iCloud, the D.C. police can actually get into it, unlike, unlike the San Bernardino. They can get into some things. They can get into some things. They right. can, um, and, um, and I set my phone that way because I might get hit by a bus. I would, or, you know, and I worry at least a little bit about whether I would want to, whether I would want to make it impossible to investigate who was driving the bus. Right, you know, I actually want a certain amount under certain circumstances law enforcement access to my my material. Um, I'm not that worried about the intrusion that the security vulnerability that that decision creates. And my conclusion from that is that it is possible to have exceptional access as in that situation without worrying too much about the uh, collateral consequences for security of exceptional access. Your argument is that I'm deluding myself. I'm confused. Is your exceptional access that there's information in the cloud or the exceptional access that that they can actually open your phone as well? The latter. Um, You know, and that under extraordinary circumstances, with appropriate process, with cooperation from Apple, my phone could get opened. So um, I think there are many people who are not, who don't view the world the same way you do, um, not just journalists uh, and not just human rights workers, but um, why should this device be openable? Why should the information there, there's plenty of information that is shared with the cloud, but why should this device be openable? And let's go one step further. Is your phone different from your iPad? Is your iPad different from your laptop? Should we create a world in which law enforcement has the right to get in the technical capability? And I'll go to something an ex-NSA person said to me once. He said, you know, law, uh, the law gives us the right to get certain information, but it never said it should be easy. Law enforcement's asking for it to be easy. And my concern is that it, by making it easy for law enforcement, we're making it easy for nefarious actors. Okay. It's not because I distrust the U.S. government. It's because I, I'm concerned about the collateral damage. Right. So I'm, but I'm interested in your, in your assessment of the collateral consequences um, as an empirical matter. My phone is set the way it's set. That allows it to be theoretically possible that under the right circumstances, with the right process, law enforcement could access it. Should I be worried as a consequence of setting my phone that way that Vladimir Putin does have access to it? Or is it a reasonable threat assessment on my part that I can give, I was going to say Jim Comey, but I uh, mean Chris Ray. I give Chris Ray access under the following limited U.S. law enforcement yeah. circumstances with Apple's cooperation. So you want me to go deep tech now? I want, well, I, I want you to give me an assessment. Yeah. Am I kidding myself? 
that I have configured my phone in the way that's secure from the people I care about it being secure from reasonably so. There, so. there are two pieces but of... But not se- under the circumstances in which I get hit by a bus and the D.C. police pick up my phone and need access to it. Okay. There are two different pieces of security. There's how you've configured your phone and that was what Apple's done and there are two diff- those are different mm-hmm. pieces. But let's say you make it as secure that... So as Apple is trying to do, that is, you've done all the right checks to make it very hard to get data off the phone. Um, then the issue is, what if um, your phone is going through customs and customs takes it away for a little bit? What if you go to a meeting where there's an, a non-disclosure agreement in effect and you have to leave your phone outside? Those are one set of issues. The more serious set of issues, however, is that if we do the kind of thing that Director Comey was asking for, that is... At the moment, uh, I guess uh, Rod Rosenstein, the Deputy Attorney General, said that law enforcement has thousands of phones that uh, they can't open. I'll note, by the way, I know from a National Academy study that they haven't actually checked, they don't have the data on what crimes they're for and whether or not there have been other ways to, 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 to do convictions. But they have thousands of phones that they've collected over the last year and a half. What happens when you have thousands of phones? What they want to do is they want to use the same process that updates your phone to send an update to the phone that says, undo the security protection. They say, if Apple can protect the way it does updates, it can protect the way it does these, these kinds of things. I don't believe it. Neither do any of my security friends. And the reason I don't believe it is, uh, and I'm going to walk you through it lightly, um, if, um, if law enforcement wants the phone opened, everybody agrees the phone needs to go to Apple. It's just a better way to do it. Okay, the phone goes to Apple. Apple is not going to have an automatic process set up to open the phone. They're going to have a lawyer, and they're going to have an engineer. And the lawyer is going to look at the warrant and so on, and the engineer is going to make sure the phone is the right phone. It hasn't been tampered with in any way, and so on. And then they're going to do the security update that applies to that particular phone. So here's where I get to imagine what it's like at Apple. And I imagine when you do, when, when Apple does an update, and it does updates rarely, a few times a year. Here's, and I got to say this once in front of an Apple engineer. Uh, I said, you know, Tim Cook comes out and he does some sort of Zen chant and there's a fire and they all do everything. And then, then they, they sign the update. Signing the update means that the, the update is coming from Apple and your phone, your iPhone, recognizes the update is coming from Apple. But now they're signing lots of different updates. And that's not a problem because they sign lots of different updates right now. Everybody's phone gets an update that says it's coming to my phone. And the reason for that is that if your phone is at 8.2, version 8.2, you don't ever want to get an update that takes it back to 8.1, which is insecure. So Apple says, we're checking that it's coming to your phone and so on. Fine. Now we have the lawyer and the engineer and the thousands of phones and the updates. You can't... When you go to a process that involves lots of people, done many times a day, you've created insecurity. It might be a people insecurity, it might be a process insecurity, but you can ask NSA, you can ask any manufacturer of building secure devices, that creates an insecurity. There's a bigger insecurity that it creates, and the bigger insecurity is the threat to Apple's signing key. Okay, so I'm worried, one, about... Um, you know, phones being opened that shouldn't, that's a small insecurity. The big insecurity is the threat to the process and the threat to Apple's signing key. If somebody gets at Apple's signing key, they can send out updates that are updates that open 
lots of people's phones, people's phones that shouldn't get opened, you know, the personal phones of people in the White House, the personal phones of people in DOD, and so on. Um, what happens then? People know, I mean, when you talk to me about spear phishing, and I go back and I think, what are the rules I tell people when I say, here's the ways you need to, to protect yourself? The first thing I say is, do automatic updates. Make sure all your automatic updates are turned on. That's the best thing you can do. Then there are other things like two-factor authentication, don't, don't succumb to spear phishing, and so on. And I have a cute story about spear phishing in a moment. But, um, but um, if Apple's update is, if, if, there, if the update process is corrupted once, what percentage of people are going to shut off automatic updates? Automatic updates are the best security story we have over the last 10 years. And why is that? Walk us through that. Why automatic updates yeah, are the why, best? Well, why, you know, most people just assemble the you have 78 updates, you know, click here to update all, right? I, I hear people laughing because that's what people do. And they kind of, you know, once every few months, they're like, oh, yeah, I should update that. Um, why should you turn automatic why? update on? Because updates fix security problems. Um, NSA, um, uh, a hacker finds a security problem. Sometimes the NSA tells the company. Sometimes they use it for a while and tell the company. Sometimes they never tell the company. A hacker finds a problem. Sometimes they sell the problem to nefarious sorts. Sometimes they tell the company. The company assembles a patch, sends the patch out a few days before the hacker publishes the result or gives a talk at DEF CON. Uh, anybody who cares at all about security should be doing uh, automatic updates all the time. I feel badly when I wait a few day, a day or two. I certainly don't wait months. Now well, let me tell you my yeah, funny story about what's your, spear what, what's your funny spear so, story? So last fall, I get an email from somebody I don't know at Princeton inviting me to a meeting on security and privacy and liberty in the digital age. And there's in an attachment. No, 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 it's in Berlin. Okay. And it's three sentences in the letter, maybe ten sentences in the letter, maybe two paragraphs. And there's an attachment where the information about the meeting is happening. So I am a graduate of Princeton. I do work in security and privacy. It's not implausible that I would be invited to such a meeting. Do I open the attachment? I take a long time searching the web to see that the dean has a secretary with this name, and I finally decide the risk is such that it's, I'm willing to open the attachment. It's legitimate, or if it's not legitimate, somebody paid for me to go to Berlin and speak for a few days with lots of people from Princeton. But I thought, what a great denial of service attack. You could just send me invitations where I have to spend 15 minutes on each invitation <laughs> to discover whether or not it's legitimate. All right. The uh, invitation, by the way, did not come from the computer science department. It came from the policy school. When I mentioned it to the computer science department, they said, it was the policy school who sent this out. So I want you all to remember this story when we find out that Susan's systems have been breached and the result was, <laughs> and it was all because she clicked on an invitation. To, from Princeton. From, from Princeton. Um, so let's, I, I want to go back to this question of sort of, relative risk associated with with different kinds of uh, of systems with different degrees of 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 uh, of encryption deployment uh, certain companies famously do not encrypt end to end uh, generally because they want to sell you advertising absolutely um, and 
I use Gmail for 95% of what I do in life. And I also have an Apple phone in my pocket. And one of them does not feel appreciably less secure to me than the other, though I know as a technical matter that that is wrong. Um, And I'm interested in your assessment of the difference between that feeling and your sense of the reality. Sure. So, in fact, I think Google does extremely good security. So I worked at Google for seven months in the privacy group. I left because I wasn't... um, it wasn't a good fit for me. Um, I did that um, 2013 to 2014. And I've maintained good relations with Google since. Um, but I don't use Gmail. I use Gmail for uh, very few things, and I don't use it for personal things at all, uh, depending on how you define personal. I don't use it for personal communications. Um, Google and Facebook both work because they have consumers' trust. The moment they lose consumers' trust, consumers will go off of them. Google really works very hard at security, um, where security means protecting from the outside. I can also say from having worked at Google in the privacy group, and I can't, uh, what I can't do is give you the details, but Google also makes it very hard for people at Google to learn anything about individuals using Google services. When Google is testing new products, they will invite Googlers to try the new products, and it will say things like, we're going to be able to see what you're doing. Um, but they do not, uh, any engine, anybody who looks at a private individual's communications or other parts of their Google account, that's immediate firing, immediate. Um, so Google has good security, and Google views that as privacy because they're protecting from the outside. You're willing to give up your privacy for a really good service, and I, I agree that Google gives really good service. When I use alternative search engines, I often switch over to Google when I can't find what I'm really looking for. Um, but you're talking about privacy versus security. Uh, I am The email that I described earlier, the person I was corresponding with, her personal account is a Gmail account. I wasn't, I was willing to send it to her Gmail account but my, my message was going to say, please hit delete forever as soon as you read it. I didn't want it in the Google archives either. Most people don't hit delete forever. But what was the security risk? So, so when you are concerned about sending somebody that email to a Gmail account, mm-hmm. but you're not concerned about sending them the same email uh, as a WhatsApp message, which is end-to-end and, and device encrypted. Um, what is the security risk that you're concerned so about? There is, it a law, is it law enforcement? No, I'm not worried about law enforcement. Access? No, I'm worried, actually, that somebody would seek to embarrass me um, by, by publishing that particular email. You know, it's not the only email I've, I've written something negative about somebody else, I, I promise. Uh, but we all say and do things all the time that put out in public look different. But, but I guess what I'm asking is I, I'm still trying to figure out what the mechanism of the security breach here is. You, oh, who you, would go after my account at Google? Oh, well, I can imagine lots of people who would want to go yeah. after your account at Google. I'm trying to, is your concern that Google is not capable of securing it against outside attack? Is it that 
Is it that uh, it's available to law enforcement in the present of process? What's the mechanism that sure. you're concerned so this, about as a so security in, in the in the particular of, of this instance of email, I actually thought the risk was pretty small. Uh, but it was just I was aware this was not something I was comfortable putting in as a permanent message as opposed to catching this person down the hallway, you know, having coffee with them and saying this thing. And it was just not an opportunity to do so. There the risk is that probably of the three you mentioned, law enforcement, uh, Google systems being breached, the thing that would be most risky is the, the particular colleague who actually practices good security, but the particular, the easiest way to get in would probably be by breaching the particular colleague system one way or another. But that's, but again, that's not, but encryption doesn't fix that problem, right? No, secure devices fix that problem because the, the, uh, the phone acts as a, a second factor. Gotcha. All right, one more question and then we'll wrap up. If you could do three things to fix or to address or improve the problem of investigations as this uh, technological cascade of developments continues. What are they? I would, as I said, increase the size of Going Dark, the Going Dark program by a factor of 10 to 20. I would uh, increase, I'll probably have more than three, but I'll try for three. I'll increase the, uh, I'll improve the career path for technical people within law enforcement. But included in that is really, and this is a, um, a piece that I don't really know how to do. I think the NSA does know how to do and probably give advice to the FBI, even though their, jo their roles are different and the kinds of things. Proving a case in court is really different from doing in intelligence work. And yet there are things that NSA learned over the last 15, 20 years that are applicable. Um, and I would uh, increase the uh, availability and ease of availability of information to state and locals so that they can conduct investigations. Susan Landau, thanks so much for joining us. The book is Listening In. Uh, we are going to take a break next month uh, from, from this series because uh, both Jack and I will be uh, away from town most of the month. Uh, but we will uh, reconvene after that. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you. more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.